Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. This is... Are these folks drunk? drunk? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, they are. I'm Brandy. I'm Emma. And I'm Mariana. This is your book club with a twist, and we are your happy hour girlfriends. This month, we're talking about My Sister, the Serial Killer by Oinka Braithwaite. <laughs> and boy, oh boy, I can't get enough of this fast-paced thriller. Seriously. Yeah. These sisters, one seemingly sadistic while the other is close to her breaking point, and all the twists and turns that arise. Last Thursday, we dove headfirst into the sensational short chapters starting with school and ending with the oh-so-timely titled MAGA. Chicas? (laughs) MAGA. (laughs) MAGA. We found ourselves further discussing misogyny, complex family dynamics, and social media. Plus, social media's influence on our potential societal demise. Yep. And who will be the next victim? Or who will break first? I don't know about both of you, but I feel pretty in the need of a stiff cocktail for what we're about to get into. Oh, (laughs) holy shit. (laughs) Well, letters. Today's cocktail is, is pretty cool because Ricardo has created a twist on a classic Nigerian cocktail called Chapman, which is often enjoyed without alcohol. Boo. <laughs> yeah, so knowing us, he created a boozy version of this cocktail, which, when made the classic Nigerian way, seems to actually come out like a fruit punch or a sans wine sangria. The key to this drink is that it must be red in color. Red, Ooh. like blood. blood. For a serial killer. Get it? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> anyway, so the name of our cocktail today is... Pick your poison. Ooh. Nice. A play on words as this relates to the selected chapters for this episode, but also because, as Ricardo will explain to you, you can pick your poison in terms of alcohol or ingredients when you make it at home. It's like a fun little create-your-own-adventure cocktail. Um, yeah, we like that. Right? Here to share the recipe for pick your poison <gasps> is our bartender in residence. Ricardo! Ricardo! Ricardo. Ow! Ciao, ladies. Ciao. Welcome. Gracias. So, today we are going to make a weird cocktail, and the name of this cocktail is Pick Your Poison. Mm. Appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um. It's a twist on the typical Nigerian non-alcoholic punch called Chapman. Ah. Oh, yeah, our character drinks this. Chapman mm-hmm. is supposed to be the last name of the client of this club in, uh, in Laos where they invented this non-alcoholic punch. It's uh, very easy, but uh, the reason why I renamed this cocktail in Pick Your Poison, other than being super appropriate for the book, is because everyone has like different tastes in, in terms of spirits. 
right, Mariana? Mm-hmm. Someone was complaining about uh, not having oh, a tequila wow. cocktail. Wow, I'm not coming to this bar again. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, right. But I did it for you. I did it for you. You're uh, the best, Ricardo. And I did it for uh, Emma that really loves mezcal. So the the recipe that I'm gonna give you has no spirit. Uh, let's say in this way like there's not just one spirit that you can use so you can use vodka you can use white rum you can use mezcal or tequila as uh, Mariana and Emma love uh, or even gin but let's go deep down in the recipe because we have a little bit of preparation and in this case the thing that we need to prepare is uh, uh, our grenadine so don't buy the grenadine from your next bodega because it's basically just sugar and we need to make our own grenadine and it's super easy just by uh, a little bit of pomegranate juice and uh, the the way to make our uh, uh, grenadine is very easy it depends on your taste if you want something more sweet or something more tart you just need to put equal part of pomegranate juice and sugar on a skillet, bring to boil uh, and be uh, sure that all the sugar in the solution is completely dissolved. Then nice. let it rest and chill, put it into the fridge and uh, take it out when we actually are going to make the cocktail. If I want it to be a little less sweet, Ricardo, can I put a little bit less sugar? Yeah, the idea is okay. is... Even if you want to, you can put a li- pour a little bit more juice okay. because of the evaporation uh, in the process, right. and you can cover the skillet uh, earlier, early on when it starts boiling. Like, just be sure that you keep stirring the solution because otherwise, with the sugar in the pan, right. you're gonna make a mess. <laughs> stirring all the way. Stirring. Stirring. Yes. I'm good at stirring. <laughs> So the recipe is pretty easy. It's gonna be one ounce of our homemade grenadine, mm. two ounces of any kind of orange soda. Uh, I'm using Fanta. Two ounces of uh, any lime soda. I'm using Sprite. And two ounces of the spirit that you love. And in this case, we are using uh, mezcal. Woohoo! What are you using for this mezcal? What is the brand you're going with? Uh, I am actually using uh, Sombra, but I love uh, uh, Illegal, or yes. I love oh, yeah. this little brand that is called Convite. And uh-huh. they have an Essential that is pretty good. Amazing. Thank and you. as a garnish for this cocktail, just use a cucumber, a cucumber slice a little bit of lemon and a slice of orange. Garnish at the, at the top with just a couple of slashes, dashes of Angostura bitter, just mm. to balance a little bit the sweetness of all these sodas. Yeah, perfect. Right. And finally, you can stir this cocktail. You can stir <laughs> it so you mix all the ingredients because you pour all the ingredients in the glass at the same time. So we need to create like a good balance solution. And then, mm. cheers. You're Hello, making us all happy today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Salute to you. Salute. Thank you, Ricardo. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Gracias. Ciao. Bye. Bye. All right, ladies. Cheers. cheers. Salute. Cheers.
Salud. Yes, Mezcal. Mezcal. Yes. Yes. Mariana is so relieved. <laughs> Finally, Ricardo. Just one. <laughs> Y'all, the color of this drink is like really freaky. It it's is. Beautiful. It is very blood-like. It really does look very blood-like. It looks like something you'd serve at Halloween. Totally. Yeah. yeah. As like a themed cocktail. Mm-hmm. I'm here for it. Pick your poison. Well, this week's chapters were jam-packed and juicy as fuck. Holy shit, yeah. As Coraday recalls a violent memory of her father bringing a woman back to their home and throwing their mother against a wall when she protested against this. She does research on Boyega, Ayula's new boy toy, Mm. and finds that, at least on social media, he's a devoted family man. Ayula returns from her most recent trip to Dubai and explains to Coraday that Boyega died of food poisoning on the trip. Mm. Mutar finally wakes up from his coma, and to her horror, he seems to remember the things Coraday was saying to him, and he doesn't seem to be buying her suggestion that he may have been dreaming while he was in the coma. Mm -hmm. And our section ends with Tode summoning Coraday to his office to show her his latest gift for Ayula. A ring. I'm really ready to just kind of like jump into that because now I'm like so fired up about that. But like, we got to roll back. We have back. to start. We, we have can't to start, start with... at the end. But we... honestly, where this section starts is juicy as fuck anyway. This yeah. story about their dad is horrifying. Yeah, it I is was horrifying. like, juicy is a scary word because it's really just horrifying. Yeah. I mean, in a literary sense, it's just. I know, I know. Well, I got my stiff cocktail, so I'm ready to go. (laughs) Go ahead, get it. Come on, just do it. Well, the first question I have, which is the first piece of the first little hint of what's going on here that I picked up was the specific detail about the woman that he brought home where this chapter starts. And (laughs) Mm -hmm. specifically, Oyinka mentions that it's a yellow woman on his arm. Yeah. And it's just an interesting way to describe someone, a yellow woman. It like, really was is. she wearing a yellow dress? Right. What is this? Well, later also, she calls her a banana colored girl. Right. I don't under, I actually don't really get that reference, but yellow keeps coming up over and over again in this, which is something I think we'll tap into a little bit later. later. But yeah. But yet I'm the, like slightly terrified to say this. Oh. The reason I'm bringing it up is because something I've been grappling with as I read this book is where Corday's moral compass mm. is. Uh-huh. Like, it's not quite clear to me yet how pure Corday actually is, even yeah. though she does seem to think she's sort of on a purer side. Yeah, she seems to think that is about there herself. any freaking chance that yellow is a slur? I... I... Don't I think I know what know. you're referencing. Yeah. I think I know what you're saying in terms of it being like a racial slur. I don't think that it's the author using a racial slur, but it made me wonder, is this Corday using a racial slur? I mean, to that point, we do know that Corday has been extremely judgmental of people's looks, their hygiene, and the way they behave. So I'm wondering if Corday is this is the way that she identifies people. I just can't imagine someone in this day and age using that specific wording right. and not 
not being aware that it could be misconstrued in that way. Right. Yeah. I mean, it did cross my mind, I won't lie, but I think I quickly dismissed that because I thought, there's no way. There's no way. I know. I, I, what I, how I think I ended up perceiving yeah. it was that uh, very much so like Ayula showed up at the hospital in a yellow dress. I think mm-hmm. that there's this thing of yellow and being like very bright Young. and sunshiny and jovial and positive, like a ray of sunlight. And I think but that that angers her. there's also the yellow of the hospital. There's the yellow and of there's dirtiness. the yellow in the painting of the house, isn't there? Well, there's the yellow of their house. In the painting, it's white, she says. And there's also the reference to yellow meaning like giving a sense of stain, like something mm-hmm. that is, that's stained as opposed that's to true. being white because if yeah. you clean yourself or if you clean your linens, they're going to be white. And if they're not, they can go off and be a little bit yellow or a little bit stained. Yeah, potentially it's just a moral commentary on this who this woman female who is. he's brought home. Yeah. Well, we know that the mom didn't like this woman because the mom oh, I know. grabbed her by the wrist and flung her. Wait, is that correct? Am well, I no, making the that mom by the hair. By the ri- well, the dad then grabs the mom by yes, the hair. Yes, I think I'm, I'm confusing the, the two circumstances. Into a wall. Mm-hmm. Which he tends to do that quite often because it, we hear about... I know, about, that does seem to be his yeah. go-to move. Yeah. And then we find out that it's soon after this that the mom started relying on Ambien. So that brings right. that... That answers our question from the last episode. It was because of the abuse. Just so heartbreaking. The abuse. This was another moment. I have to say I'm hanging on to this and I, 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 I feel like it's going to be useless in the end and I'm going to ah. feel foolish. But there was another moment in this in this little section where I got another sense of this like supernatural, the supernatural occurrences that mm. kind of keep coming up in this story. She describes her mom as Medusa like because I guess it's the middle of the night and her hair is kind of crazy. And she describes her as screaming like a banshee. Yeah over what is occurring and again I just had this sense of like there's something else at play here yeah and I guess for our listeners and those who haven't actually read along with us just so you are aware right now we find out that this were one of uh the father's liaisons or the father's extramarital affairs so this woman is there at their home so all the women that are part of his family know that he is having his affairs at home while at they're present. At home. Dirty, dirty man. Dirty, and dirty man. really young women because they make a point to say that this woman can't be older than 20. Well, and we know from earlier from the chapters we read last week that he seemed to have a taste for women who were in their college years. And it seemed like he was helping finance some of their you know, their college expenses. You know, in a way, it felt like to me that he was breeding them to be his go-to. Like like grooming Uh them. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Well, I have to say, I felt like Ayula's distaste for men who only appreciate women for their looks, I feel like it might stem from the fact that her dad seemed to have an appetite for the Mm -hmm. same damn thing. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's really observant and pretty accurate in my mind. Yeah. You know what really, it just, it, it was really awful to read was after this, this occurrence happens and mm-hmm. there's a lot of abuse that happens. The woman 
in yellow or the yellow woman laughs at the sight of what's happening when right. you know his mother mm-hmm. their mother is being pulled by the hair the next morning they're at breakfast he's at the head of the table and he's acknowledging mm-hmm. his wife as the perfect wife and also just commenting and just being so overwhelmed with how wonderful her cooking is and i'm like what the fuck like do you not remember what you just did yesterday to your wife and you two in front of your wife and your two daughters like do you Mm -hmm. not so it just it's it's no he knows he just doesn't take any responsibility that that was that he was in the wrong but he just pretend yeah but he pretends that everything is fine and Mm -hmm. these women have to just belong to this and be a part of this because maybe they just don't have a choice and just and they just deal with it and i think an important distinction to make i forget exactly what corday says in this section but i don't think it's that he i don't think he has any sense that he is in the wrong i think this guy thinks he has a right to whatever he wants because corday says something to the effect of like He's not paying the mom these compliments about her cooking as an apology. He's just completely moved on right. from what happened last night. Like, it's just nothing to him. Yeah, and women now they're are back property. to their normal morning. Women are sex objects and property. And that's, right. I don't know, a, a cultural thing for, I know, for, in a lot of cultures that sadly is true. Right. But misogyny does seem to be playing a big part in this story. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this moment is a huge, like, indication of that in in this culture and in their home, for sure. Yeah, throughout the whole book, I got that. Yeah. I mean, so far. (laughs) Yeah, well, and it definitely seems to be something that drives Ayula to do what she's been doing. So that that kind of actually leads me into the next chapter called Research, where we find out that Coraday has been researching Boyega, the man that is um, on, who's been funding Ayula's fashion school, the new mm-hmm. boy toy. And it makes me think of that because, again, it brought up for me that whole concept of social media like we were talking about last week but right. this this time in the aspect of relationships so like you never really know what's real or not yeah. because we find Corday finds all these photos of Boyega's family like his wife and his kids. three kids <sighs> and everything on the appearance wise it seems like they're really happy and in a very loving relationship which right. now we find out it may not be the case Or it may be the case. That's something that I kept wondering was like, because we see Corday finds posts from Boyega's wife that basically paint him as this wonderful father and husband and all this stuff. Um, And then I think we also see a post from Boyega about his like lovely wife or whatever it is. So it made me wonder, does this wife know what is going on? And she just chooses to ignore it. Or does she have no idea and she thinks their relationship is great? I think it would probably be more the latter. Actually, the former. Because, again, to the point that I made in the previous section, there seems to be, again, this facade that people like to create. And I'm getting Mm -hmm. the feeling that these women... The, the mothers of the family, the wives, oh, yeah. are kind of 
in a place where they are fully aware of what's going on. There's a lot of fear involved, and they yeah. would like to project to you know, everyone else that everything is fine, everything yeah. is great. There, there's so much love in the family, and it's very picturesque. Yeah, even to the point that Corday at one point says. There are every bit the typical upper middle class family, Nigerian family, when she's talking about Boyega's family. And this is what yeah. the wife wanted to for everybody else to see. That's really interesting. I hadn't really put together the parallel between Boyega's wife and their mom and how mm. they're sort of both in the same position. And you're probably right. Just like their mom, Boyega's wife probably does know what's going on and for whatever reason. Woman's intuition. They always know. Yeah. Well, and in the case of their mom, like she didn't even need women's intuition because he was just bringing them home. Right. What's also like an interesting question to me, if you know that things are really bad, would you post something sweet and loving on social media to project to everyone else that things are fine or to tell yourself maybe like to remind yourself of better times or maybe even worse hoping that your partner will see that and be reminded again of why they love you you know there's like a whole mind fuck in that yeah the only other little shout out i wanted to give in this section of the book is that it just kind of came screaming to me in this moment when Corday's doing this research on social media about Boyega. I was like, holy shit, this guy is their dad. Like, he's, he's like present day their father. He's cheating on his wife mm-hmm. and children. He's cheating on his family with these younger, quote unquote, more beautiful, whatever that mm-hmm. means, women. And he's also helping fund their careers or their school or whatever it is like this man of any of the men we know about so far really fully embodies what I think Ayula hates the most moving on furiously next chapter entitled car so correct me if I'm wrong but what I remember from having read this two days ago (laughs) I have a really shit short-term memory. A lot of has happened since then, Emma. (laughs) (laughs) The police return Corday's car to her while she's at work at the hospital, which is problems, problems, problemsome. Problematic? What's that word? Troublesome? Troublesome. Problematic. Oh, my God. Problematic (laughs) meets troublesome. Slash troublesome. Perfect. For a few reasons, but... The main one in this case is that her coworker Chichi is there to witness this whole exchange. Right. So now Chichi is an accomplice, or a witness, I guess a is witness. actually the more appropriate term, a witness to something having to do with the car and why Corday didn't have it in her possession and why mm-hmm. they needed to check it and bring it back to her. Yeah. So I'm really curious to see how this is going to come back because you know that Oyinka put this character in there for, for a, a reason because otherwise Corday could have just like been by herself when the car is there. So I'm so curious right. how totally. she's going to come into play. Yeah. And what I found so interesting is that they, the police decides to return the car at the hospital where she works right. as opposed to returning it at her home, which right. in that regard, it seems to me that the location meant 
that they had the power at this mm-hmm. location versus Corday having the power at her home. They even ask her for money because the transportation costs money. So they now are asking her to give them, asking her to give them payment back. Yeah, for, like, so me. It is so fucked. And she even goes on to say that she wishes that she would have been armed and ready. For a second, mm. she even wished that a Yula was beside her, would have been beside yeah, her. Yeah, that was interesting. Although, so I had two thoughts on that because a part of me was like, wait a minute, does she wish Ayula had been beside her? Is that like a dark thought of like, mm, my sister could take care of them? Or was that a like, if Ayula was here, she's so beautiful, they never would have tried this? Right. I feel like the latter. kind of go both ways. But I did question it for a second. Yeah. Corday's shifty. I'm not sure about Corday yet. I know. We haven't been sure about her this whole time. That's true. That's true. But it's getting worse. I feel like the longer we go on, the more I'm <laughs> yeah. like, I'm like, this woman, this narrator is not telling us the whole truth. No. I don't think. And to that point, she goes on to mention when she like knows that these men were in her car and all the filth that they brought mm, inside oh, with yeah. them, that she says, if she's able to clean it, she will be able to clean and erase what actually happened. She will erase yeah. that memory. So I think mm-hmm. Corday constantly is trying to figure out how to erase these moments that don't comply to what she wants to have happened yeah. by cleaning them. I think she's trying to figure out how she can clean her soul. And I think the problem she keeps having is that, like, she can't. Like, it's dirtied. And she's I frustrated also felt by that. Like in this, yeah, I think she. I think it's driving her slowly crazy. I, yeah, I think the things that she's done, she has a different image in her head of who she is versus who, she, what her actions have shown her to be. And I mm-hmm. think by compulsively cleaning everything, she's trying to cleanse herself, and she's finding that that's just never going to happen. Yeah. In this moment, I also found it this this whole exchange with the police. It's the second or third time we've seen her interact with the police. It's never she always sort of describes them as being they always seem to take advantage. They they're mm-hmm. always a little bit grimy. And it made me wonder if she's maybe projecting her feelings about herself out onto the world. It made me wonder if her guilt is coloring her view of the world. Or is it a comment on the world versus women? That was another question I had. Hmm. The filth of the circumstances that often surround our gender. Is she sort of, are her circumstances being created by a world that hates women? And is that what, is that what the yellow is? Is that what the dirty Hmm. is? Is that Hmm. what the negligence is? Is that what these filthy cops are? That's so interesting. I, I doubt, I mean, as you were saying earlier about this whole thread of theme of misogyny throughout and I, and she is making so many points about how men have treated women terribly her whole life. Mm-hmm. I I have also been feeling that, that there is just some, I think I mentioned at the end of the last episode too, you know, that it feels to me like these women are just so fed up with men treating them so badly that yeah. they just want to kill. Because yeah. there's just so much rage built up inside of them. Mm-hmm. That I I, I want to say that it leans more towards that than it does her feeling so guilty that she's projecting that on everyone else. Hmm. But it is interesting because she does seem to have a pretty negative viewpoint of all the women in the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
She does speak of Mohammed poorly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's not a single person in this book who's sort of free of sin in her mind, except Except for for and Femi. And but Femi, I feel like she does have a little bit of a slash against because he fell for it. He fell for Ayula. But she's questioning why he fell for it, because in her mind, she's very complex and seems like almost perfect. Right. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I'm kind of on Corday's side about this, you know, feeling attacked, this feeling of being attacked by men in her life, because this next chunk, Heart, like really pissed me off because she goes to visit Today in his office. This is essentially where he blames Corday for not being by Ayula's side. Yeah. And blaming her for why Ayula's having to see other men because her own sister right. treats her like a monster. And I was like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, why would Ayula drag Corday through the dirt like this? And why would Today still stand up for Ayula if he knows that there's another man in the picture? Yeah. This scene really pissed me off. And so did freaking Today. Yeah. Because for the first for the first real I mean, I've had inklings of this, but for the first really solid moment, I was like, oh, this guy literally is just like all the other ones. He's exactly what Ayula says he is. All he cares about is her looks. And I feel like this is the first moment when Corday really sees that, too. Maybe Ayula is the smartest one in this whole book. I know. <laughs> she seems I mean, to I really doubt like, that. She seems she to grasp out. men better than anyone else. Not men, but like humans. Like she really yeah. understands the human psyche. All people. Yeah, because she even gets in that moment when she comes in in the yellow dress, she, like Yinka, everybody. She's got everybody wrapped mm-hmm. around her little finger. Even she to plays the, the game better than anyone. Even to the point that she somehow gets into into Tode's head and him thinking that because Corday is her sister, then Corday is supposed to be on Ayula's side. Like it kind of is like he's already she's already in his head and giving him the statements that he should then state to Corday, which mm-hmm. I found this like completely infuriating because how yeah. can this be coming from a man who, yeah, he may have siblings or not, but he's basically telling her what she's supposed to do. And mm-hmm. I don't know about you guys, but if anybody tells me what I'm supposed to do, that I then just either yeah, freeze go and go totally. off or just I shut down because I'm like... How yeah. do you know what I'm supposed to do? Why don't you pay attention to what you should be doing instead of, like, putting that on me? So that, for me, was just, right. like, the end of Today. Yeah. Anytime anyone tells me to calm down, it, like, escalates the level, oh, like, way worse. God. I'm like, don't tell me to calm down! Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. calm! That's the quickest way to piss me yeah. right off. The thing that really set me off in this chapter was that this is the first time that we get a hint. I forget what Tode says to Corday, but he basically hints at the fact that Ayula has said that Corday's treating her poorly. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh shit, Ayula is playing both freaking sides. She's lying to Tode about Corday. She's making it sound as if she has malicious intentions or ill will of some kind towards Ayula. And again, this made me wonder, is Ayula somehow setting Corday up? Is she making it sound like Corday doesn't want her to be happy? And therefore, maybe Corday's been running around murdering Ayula's boyfriends to keep her miserable and alone? 
It's like, if, did you guys see that movie? So I married an axe murder. I it's don't like so. Think I married so. an axe murderer with a twist. <laughs> I don't think no. so. No. Uh, it's about these two sisters, and one of them starts dating Mike Myers, but, but like it turns out that her sister has been murdering all of her boyfriends <laughs> from like the past. It's like a really quirky story, <laughs> but again, it just made me wonder: Is Ayula setting Corday up? Because why is she feeding Tode these lies? And then it also made me wonder, is she feeding the mom those same lies? Because the mom also seems to always take Ayula's side. Like, what is Ayula telling the mom? But regardless, even if she's playing both sides and she's telling them that, I th- it's so funny to me that Ayula, in Corday's mind, she writes, Ayula is still inconsiderate and selfish and reckless, but her welfa- welfare is and always has been my responsibility. So mm-hmm. no matter how yeah. reckless and how oblivious to what's happening or how, uh, like, awful she is, Corday still thinks that she is responsible for her doings. Right. Well, I mean, I remember being a little girl, like, if my, if my little sister had hit me when I was little and I went crying to my mom, she'd be like, well, you're the big sister, deal with it. And yet, if I had ever hit my little sister and my little sister went crying to my mom, mm. I'd be in big fucking trouble. You don't hit your little sister. Like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? It's that weird, like... Yeah, but that's you're when you're young, one. though. I mean, right now, these women are in, what, their um, 20s? But that doesn't go away. Like that stuff that that stuff that gets set in your brain when you're young, that lasts forever. Yeah, that doesn't go away. Yeah. So there are the labels again. A lot of labels. We're labeling women. We're labeling men. We're labeling killers. (laughs) Husbands, wives. (laughs) Label them all. So after this, I think... Corday goes to confide in Mutar and she sort of takes him through his exercises. And this is the chapter when the words of one of Femi's poems return to her. And this seems to be something that kind of starts to happen more and more frequently, that Femi sort of starts coming back to her. And the thing that sort of blew my mind in this section is that I kind of still can't believe that Corday continues to talk to Mutar as if he weren't as if he couldn't possibly be conscious or aware. Like, she's a nurse. Right? I thought the same thing. I feel like surely some part of her must know that comatose patients often report having heard, like, what was happening around them, despite the fact they can't react to it. Like, they report hearing music that their family was playing for them. Something. And at first I thought, like, is it possible this is an oversight or something on the part of the author? And then I was like... I don't think so, because she seems she's a really good writer. Mm -hmm. And I thought, is it possible that Corday wants to get caught? Yeah. Is like the filth in her soul becoming too much for her to handle and she just like wants to be free of it? Or she could also be coming to her breaking point. It comes to a point that they might have been like what I said before. This was a coping mechanism. But at this point, she doesn't Mm. realize that this man could wake up. And could then remember everything that has been happening. If she's going to become head nurse in this hospital, like, wouldn't she think How do you that, not know that? How do you not know that? Uh, and I, I There's wanna, no way. I want to backtrack just a, a second because in the previous section, as she's leaving uh, Tode's office, she says that she's overwhelmed with the pounding in her head. 
Oh, yes. And I feel yes, like that's so kind of like a, this psychotic break. This is like, like crazy is happening. Like she is now getting to a place where she can't control. Well, I don't know if you guys remember, but at the beginning of the book, when Ayula commits the first murder that we meet her for, it's actually her third one, Corday's asking her what happened and, you know, what happened after you stabbed him and all this stuff. And Ayula says a very similar thing about after the moment she kills him. She says something about not being able to hear that the pounding in her head was so loud. Mm-hmm. So... Ooh. And it, I, I also remembered that thing she said about her, their blood being the same. It's also their father's blood. And that's the blood pounding in your ears. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, is that blood getting to her? Is that blood like the knife? Which you know? then leads her to not really be able to function as she did as a nurse and really follow through with the protocol. When she's with an yeah. unconscious patient, like this is what you need to do. There's certain things that she that she's supposed to do, which it may she may or may not be doing, or she may be forgetting about because this pounding or this blood rush is so it's too much for her. Right. I feel like all of this starts to come to a head at the next chapter. I could not believe this next chapter. Ayula returns home from her trip with Boyega. They had gone to Dubai together, and. She kind of says it like it's nothing. She reveals that he died of food poisoning while they were there. Yeah. She she tells Corriday this. And Corriday does some research and she finds some inconsistencies between Ayula's version of events versus what's being reported in the news. I think in the news they're saying it was an overdose. A drug overdose. A drug overdose. A drug overdose. But she was claiming it was food poisoning. And then also in the news they're saying there was no other people involved. Mm -hmm. Even though, obviously, we know Ayula was there. And Corday even wonders, like, how did she convince the police to say she wasn't there? This food poisoning thing I had such a problem with because she says, oh, he died of food poisoning. But she describes his symptoms as sweating a lot and then grasping his throat. Right. Like, food poisoning does not make you hold your throat. It right. That's not how it affects you. That's poison that's true yeah. oh that's true that's not food poisoning so i was like bitch mm, you don't yeah. even know <laughs> like you're sucking as a serial killer but i mean yeah. did this bring up all the questions for you about i mean i have this section to me i was like whoa 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 wait 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 yeah because as corday says you know this poison is not her style in killing she always kills with a knife so then i was thinking well, did she actually kill him? Did she kill him purposely? You know, did she? could she not fly with the knife on the plane so she didn't have the knife? Had uh. she, was she plan? if she did kill him, which I think she did, was she planning this from the beginning and that's why she agreed to go on the trip with him in the first place? Like, I have yeah. so many questions. I want to know what you think. Well, to that, to the thing about, you know, not being able to fly with the knife, I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but at the very beginning of this chapter, it might be right after she tells Corday that Boyega died on their trip. Ayula says she has a gift for Corday, and then just as she's about to give it to her, Tode arrives and interrupts them, and so we never get to see what this gift was. Mm. And it, I could be totally off, but a part of me was like, is she going to give her the knife as if to say, like, I'm totally done with this, I'm not going to murder anymore, but in reality, she's moved on to a different form of killing. She's just not what? killing with a knife anymore. It could be something totally different, but we just never get to see what that gift is. My question is, 
if she did kill Boyega, and I think she did, why oh, is she lying sure. to Corday about it? Why would she have to lie hmm. when she's asked her for help the last three times? Well, I do think, because I started thinking, maybe the three murders that Ayula committed to make her become a serial killer were the, the three murders, the way she did it, she needed an accomplice to help her clean up. And knowing that her sister is a meticulous individual who is a nurse, she needed the help and she knew that her sister, being responsible of her, of Ayula, would do so. But who's to say that she might have had multiple killings in between or other murders that she might have committed where she didn't actually need the help of someone else, which would then go along with this. Boyega and her on a trip to Dubai. She didn't need anybody with her. If she poisoned him, she could do it by her on her own. And if yeah. the police would have come to the scene or if she did like what she said, she called an ambulance or she called the emergency number. I think she just said emergency number or 911. Yeah. You know, she wouldn't have needed anybody else's help and she would have been able to get yeah. out of it without anybody really, you know, putting her at fault. So I think Ayula has also been suspecting for a while the way Corday is really feeling. I think that was part of why she was visiting the hospital so frequently. I think she could sense that Corday was sort of pulling away mm-hmm. from her or like feeling suspicious of her. Mm-hmm. And I think Tode has even like upped that a little bit. I think she knows that there was something between Tode and Corday. And I, I just feel like she knows that her things are changing with her sister a little bit. I think she knows Corday's probably not going to be along for the ride for very much longer. Right. And now it's the game of how far can she push her. Right. I also do think with the title of this chapter, it's entitled Angel of Death. I'm also wondering if mm-hmm. Ayula also thinks that she, in a way, she's doing God's work. You know, because she watched, I mean, we think that she watched her father die, but did she really? We are not exactly sure what exactly happened. Does she maybe find pleasure in killing these men if it were to if it were to be more than three murders like she does them in different ways and she finds pleasure in killing men that have someone that have somehow done something wrong to her or treated her wrongly or her or to have society. raped her like or, she's doing exactly a service to she's doing exactly. it for the greater good exactly for all the women out there yeah. she's actually getting rid of all the men that are misogynist pigs and helping women you know the the species in general yeah, there was also something mm. in this chapter that gave me the sense that Corriday kind of thinks that Boyega might have deserved what he got from Ayula. Or at least she thinks he deserved it more than Femi did, which I think kind of hints at this like this thing that I've been picking up on for a little while now, which is that there's like a moral relativism in Corriday. I think a normal human being would say no one deserves to be murdered. Right. And no one deserves to be murdered, even if they're having an affair or lying to their wife and their children. But this kind of doesn't seem to be Corday's point of view in this chapter. I feel like she thinks Femi's up here. Femi didn't deserve this. But Boyega, like, it's a little like, mm. I don't think she would have killed him. But I think there is a little piece of her that's like, well, he was cheating. He was not a great person. 
she sort of seems to have Femi in one spot and then Boyega like just below Which a little bit. Which is also interesting because the reason why Corday started making all these realizations is when Boyega showed up. She didn't even know he existed. And when right. he showed up, she then found out that Ayula was lying to her even about how she was financially supporting her career. That it was right. all Boyega. Mm-hmm. So then yep. to me, her, her moral hierarchy is a little off because yeah. if it was if it weren't for Boyega, she wouldn't have even known all these actual truths about her sister that she was lying to everybody from the get go. Right. right. So, even though with Femi, she there's something there's like a kingship or something that Femi and Corade have, even though she never met him. But he, every yeah. every time she, you know, talks about him, it's all about him being nearly perfect. Like, how could mm-hmm. he have been the one to fall? for for Ayula's demise. Why did he not see through right. her like Tode is not seeing through her? It, it, right. It, it's, it's interesting. Ooh. It's fascinating. Speaking of Tode, fucking Ayula calls Tode as soon as she comes back to Dubai. Yeah. And then he comes back and knocks on their door and he says, you naughty girl. Yeah. What was that? You naughty girl for like running away with someone else? Well, we're going to find out later. He knows that he cheated on, that she cheated on him. No, we already know that. That's why he was. Oh, we already know that. Yeah. And he blames Corday for that. Yeah. So he knows that she was with someone else. Mm -hmm. And then, but I think now probably Ayula calls him and she's like, I've left him. And now I just want to be with you. And he's like, oh, okay. And he just runs back. You naughty girl. She also brings back up in this chapter, Corday. The notebook. I had forgotten about this, that she keeps that notebook yeah. with the names of the men that Ayula's killed. Right. I have this suspicion that someone is going to find this notebook mm-hmm. and then pin all of these deaths on Corday. Yeah. Which also is an interesting theory because, as Brandy was saying, like, why is she not noticing that she's talking to an unconscious person who potentially could come back out of his coma and then relay all the information that she is kind of told him. But in the same way, she's starting to write down these names of Ayula's victims that she's been an accomplice to, except Boyega, obviously. But she's starting to write down. So she either she has no fucking idea what she's doing or she's now (laughs) she's in such a psychotic state that she's starting to do things that she that she would have never done if she was in her right state of mind. Yeah. So then we have a chapter called Birth. There's another reference to Ayula being like a doll, which is this right. theory that you were going hard on last week, Brandy, about in your witchcraft theory and the supernatural and how she's able to manipulate her. But also I right. think you were talking about that, Mariana, in terms of her just being like this perfect little... Mm-hmm. Like baby doll in the doll's mm-hmm. house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so this chapter is entitled birth because we're going back to Ayula's birth, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is like we're going back in time to when the responsibility is now placed on Corday to be the responsible big sister. Right. right. But interestingly, Cor- so Cor- she's born and she's so still that Corday thinks she's a doll. She literally thinks this is a doll. And Ayula moves for a second, and Corday's so scared. That, <laughs> right. Like, she just literally thought this was a doll. She even says, is she mine? Aww. Right. And then that's kind of when their mom says, like, you know, you're her older sister. Like, you're always going to be responsible for her kind of thing. 
But when you have a doll that is a toy, you make that doll do things. You manipulate that doll. So there's kind of a weird double. Hmm. What did you do to your dolls, Brandy? I just mean like, you know, (laughs) you play with them. You decide what they're going to (laughs) do. Versus like a doll that you're like responsible for and love. You know what I mean? Like there are just two very different things I think going on in this chapter where Cora Day initially thinks this is mine to do with what I please. Mm. And then her mom has to instruct her and say, no, no, this is a person that you're responsible for. Interesting. And it kind of, again, just made me question, are we dealing with an unreliable narrator is everything Corday telling us the truth, or is she somehow spinning this? Is she taking us down a path that's not real? She's making us think she's the innocent one. When I'm like, is Ayula the innocent one, and you're really the one doing all this shit? I don't know. I don't know. It's a tangent. So then we go from the birth, from Ayula's birth, to her birthday in present time. And as the family prepares for the party, their mother muses that Tode may propose tonight. When he shows up, he tries to make nice with Corday because they've been kind of rocky ever since he started dating Ayula. But he immediately becomes distracted by Ayula. And after catching sight of them making out throughout the night, Corday can't take it anymore. And she leaves the house in need of someone to talk to. Someone other than Mutar, she says. And we don't ever find out who she talks to or if she talks to anyone, but she makes a point of saying she needs to speak to someone other than Mutar. I'm not sure what's upsetting her more at this point. I'm not sure if it's upsetting her more that Ayula and Tode are together or if it's that Ayula knows she had feelings for Tode and she went after him anyway. You know what I mean? Like, it seems like... It seems like the relationship between her sister is driving her crazier than her the absence of her relationship with Tode. And I think also how her mother knows or thinks and hopes that Tode is going to be proposing to Ayula at some point soon. Mm-hmm. So Corday still has kind of this idea that she's an after afterthought. Because even yeah. at this point, her mother says before Tode shows up to the party that it, she tells both of her daughters, it's time for you. But then she corrects herself and, and says, it's time for the both of you to start thinking about settling right. down. Something that struck me in this section is she brings up yet again Femi and his poems. And she specifically yeah. says that Femi writes in his poem about the sun being able to kill you and burning on your back. Mm-hmm. And I found this parallel in that of, Ayula being bright and yellow like the sun, and she killed him in the back. Hmm. Like Ayula was the sun, and her brightness and her hotness can drive you to anger and eventually death by stabbing you in the back. Hmm. So just, I mean, a little food for thought I thought was cool. The other thing that I thought was really interesting also in regards to your question about what really is the problem with Corday here in terms of not being able to have Tode anymore or the fact that Ayula was only doing this as like, I don't know if revenge is the right word, but like as a game because she knew that Corday loved 
liked Today. Mm-hmm. And she says, if I thought she loved him, I think I could be happy for them. I could, I think. And I was like, really? Could you actually? This felt to me very much like an Angelica and Eliza with Hamilton, you know? Mm-hmm. Have you guys seen Hamilton? <laughs> Have you seen the Hamilton? <laughs> <laughs> it felt like Angelica, you know? She she saw him first at the party, mm. and she was immediately attracted to him because of his essence, not because of his looks, but because... I'm not going to try to quote it, but because he was witty like she was and she found like she finally found her match. And then Eliza comes in and she's like, I'm helpless. I love this man. And she lets Hamilton, she lets her have him because she loves her sister so much. Oh. Is what this felt like to me. But I was like, I don't know. I don't know that I really could believe that Corday would be okay with Ayula being with him. Like She really likes this man a lot which she does say later right when Ayula asked her do you like him and she said no I love him yeah Uh. now we move into coma which is when Mutar wakes up and just as I suspected in the last episode Mutar bum 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 seems to remember a lot of what Corday told her him right and Tode says you can't anticipate what stimuli the brain will respond to and again I was like yes but don't we know this about patients who are comatose right mm-hmm. <laughs> right Tode Corday like she should have known better yeah it's I don't know it's kind of ridiculous I thought it was really interesting in this section she talks again about there's this thing with Muhammad, stinky Muhammad, who has bad hygiene and smells. And yet in this chapter, we have two women fighting over him, which Corday doesn't understand because of his hygiene issues and because he's such a slacker at work. But I thought it was really interesting that again, for the second time in this book, we have two women fighting over a man, fighting each other over a man, instead of going to the source, this man and being like, you're freaking cheating or you're, you know, you're stringing us both along or whatever. Like they're holding the woman responsible for what's actually the fault of the man. Mm. Seems to be a theme here. Right. Yeah. It sort of all feeds back into this like misogynistic culture where like maybe this is just sort of what they've been acclimated to or something like this is what they think is normal I don't know and what is so special about Mohammed like if he is so stinky or maybe that's maybe he's really not but that's just that's the way Corday sees him well if you think about it if we go back to I don't remember what section in the book I think it's when we talked about it last week if I'm not mistaken when we're talking about their aunt and she mentions a couple of times that they're not that men are scarce and that women have to act a certain way to either get mm. a man or to get married. So right. in a way, I feel like women yep. continuously fight against each other so they can get this man, which might not be the man that they fully are enamored by or that they love. But it's just because right. the idea is that men are the ones that then are in power of the relationship. So if they can get a hand, right. their hands on one, even if they have to fight a woman out of the way, they will do so. No mm, matter right. how like gross he is or how misogynistic he is or how his hygiene is not up to par. 
But anywho, now continuing with the story <laughs> with Coraday and Eula, the next section uh, was entitled The Game, which I found it very curious because uh. they, Ayula, Coraday, and Tode were at Ayula and Coraday's house during mm-hmm. a rainy day. They decided to play a game and they played Cluedo, which I had no idea, which is Clue for us, but they yeah. called it. Cluedo. Cluedo. Which apparently it's the same game. It is Clue, but it's only known as Clue in the northern, in North America. So yeah, so they're they're playing this game of Clue, which is, you know, guess the murderer and the murder weapon and the room in which it happened. And Corday mentions that Tode had been really naive throughout this and like really wasn't picking up on, I guess, the really obvious clues to Corday about what Ayula is doing here. But then again, Corday also supposes, she says, that her and Ayula's naivety were beaten out of them, which mm-hmm. I thought was such a sad and striking thing to say. Beaten. Yeah. yeah. Beaten out of them. Ugh. That there's no room for naivety anymore. Yeah. And um, yeah. really like gives you an, an inside look into their motives for why they've done what they've done. Well, that quote specifically really stuck out to me because to me it meant there's no way that Ayula has naively chosen this game. Right, right. there's no way she has naively selected this game to play with these two people. And it made me sort of think there are actually two games going on. There's the game of Cluedo Mm -hmm. with the three of them. But then there's this sort of game of cat and mouse going on just between Ayula and Coraday, Mm -hmm. where Ayula sort of dangling Tode in front of her being like, this is my toy. I can do what I want. Look at how he dances no matter what I say. So fucked up. It is so fucked up. So then from here, we jump to we jump back in time, back to when Mm -hmm. Ayula is 17 years old. Basically back to the first murder that she commits, which is Samto. And she calls Corday in a panic. And they burn down a building to cover their tracks is essentially what happens. Yeah. And interestingly, she describes Ayula as having been kind of... It, it, it felt like a complete 180 from where she was when we first meet her at the beginning of this book. The murder that she commits here, she sort of... She's sort of calm, like it, it sort of feels like status quo a little bit. But this murder with Samto, she's frantic. She's she seems scared. Mm-hmm. It's also the first murder that you've committed. So like that's right. seems pretty normal to me. Right. But I mean, it is indicative of somebody who like didn't maybe th- plan maybe it. it wasn't premeditated. Yeah. Like there seems to have been a little bit of. I hate to use this word, but like there's been a little bit of growth that has happened. <laughs> a little bit of what? A little bit of growth from murder one to murder three and even four, I guess now with Clearly to Oyega. four. Yeah. Or was there? I mean, even though she's 17, she usually shows a different side of her to everybody else. And now we know that she's lied to Corday constantly. So maybe she was just playing a game. That's true. Because why? Maybe she was putting it on. Yeah. Because she goes, Corday goes to say that this guy's face was in shock the way it was frozen in a shocked state right. the way hers was. And sure, you know, you're going to be scared and everything. And that's what Ayula showed her. But who knows if she had done this before? Like, we still don't know right. what exactly happened with the dad. You're right. 
And even Corriday, Corriday keeps calling this the first murder, but even Corriday doesn't really Believe know that. if this yeah. is the first one. She's still questioning it. Well, and I have questions about the, the scenario in which it happened, because why were Sumto's trousers around his ankles when she killed yeah. him? Yeah. Like, was yes. he in the bathroom just like Femi was, or were they about to have sex, maybe not consensually? Mm. Like, why? Or did she pull his pants down after she killed him just in order to an... back up her self-defense mm. theory? Oh, I also thought it was really interesting that when Corday tallies up the the points at the end of this chapter, she says, murderer, I guess she's she's playing Cluedo still a little bit. She says, murderer, Ayula, place, studio apartment, weapon, knife. But she doesn't say anything about her own part in all of this. Like, I literally in my head was like, oh, arson and possible murder of everyone else who lived in the apartment building? Right. Corriday. Like, you didn't like think you about that point. The fact that you could have killed all those other innocent people mm-hmm. in the building. Right. It's insane to me mm-hmm. that she tells that story just as if, like, nah, this happened. And I was like, wait, right. but, like, there were probably children in that building. Like, what do you mean you just set it on fire? Yeah, again, I think that's why when you say that there was growth, I think we, there was because that first one felt so panicked from both of them. And then everything else is a little more, a little more thought out. Sophisticated. Sophisticated. <laughs> Sophisticated murders. <laughs> Well, I love the title of this next <laughs> chapter called Man Eater. I love the play on words about this. Yes. 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 Because this is when we f- Tode finally finds out that the yummy cake that he's eating was not, in fact, baked by his mm-hmm. dear perfect Ayula, but by Corday. Right. You're right. And interestingly, Ayula offers up that information freely. Yeah. Ayula is not trying to keep up that facade. Right. <laughs> That's true. She's like, why would you think I made this? This was Corday. I thought it was really curious, too, that when Tode finds out that Corade made the cake and not Ayula, it, like, doesn't phase him at all. Yeah. It doesn't. She's he doesn't still even perfect. Bat an eye. Yeah, she's still perfect. And he's, like, clueless and happy as he eats his little cake. And it reminded me of, like, a pig getting fattened up for slaughter or mm. something. He even, like, tells Corday that the cake is heavenly. And I was like, mm, is that maybe where you're headed soon? Like, he uh. just has no awareness at all about Ayula. Nothing that is said about her can affect him. Like, he's just made up his mind. But is it awareness or he just doesn't care? Because a doctor with his profession, how can he not be aware of certain things? Does he just not care and he just wants a beautiful woman on his side? And that she's beautiful and perfect and that's all he cares for because he doesn't really know her. It's interesting, though, because at the beginning of the book, Tode was painted as somebody who, like, he has that great moment where he, like, sings to one of the patients. But it's all things for kids. That's true. We're hearing the story through Corriday. You're right. She she paints him a certain way at the beginning of the book that makes him seem more not just sympathetic, but also more. He seems smarter. He seems like yeah. a more compassionate person, like wise and observant and yeah. witty. Yeah. Right. And the ideal like man. Point, <laughs> yeah. And at this With point, nice he just arms. seems stripped down to this one thing, wanting Ayula. And that's it. Yeah. Let's not talk about Tode anymore. So Mutar wakes up. <laughs> yeah, he he's does. Out of his coma. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And then I thought it was funny because once he's awoken, Corday doesn't go to visit him anymore until he well, asks to see her. she's scared of him. Yeah, she's I mean, rightfully fearful. so. But she spent all that time soothing him and loving him, caring I for mean, him. I mean... I question that a little bit because there right. was sort of like a double thing going on. Like, yes, she would go. She would take care of him. She was doing things nobody else would do for him. But she was also going for her own little, like, therapy session. Yeah, for sure. All right. So, fuck Mutar. Let's not talk about Mutar. She was Let's getting something out Let's talk about the market chapter. Yeah. So this chapter comes out of her... It comes out of a moment of fear when she realizes that Mutar is awake and Mutar probably has a lot of valuable information about mm-hmm. her. And that leads her to this memory. Yeah, which she quotes that as saying, Suddenly I was in an unfamiliar place surrounded by threatening strangers. I feel now much the way I felt then when she starts talking about what happened to her in the market when she was left behind. Mm-hmm. And she now is uncertain and afraid and very sure that something bad is going to happen to me, which she associates yeah. that to after Mutar's awakening. So there's something that she correlates with that, that, that her anxieties have gotten into a place where she feels a sense of loss and a f- sense of abandonment and, like, what is going to happen now right. to me. And, uh, and like, panic almost. Yeah. Like, I feel like she's panicked in this moment. As she should. Right. Because of her fault. Have you guys ever had a moment <laughs> like that? I feel like it's a moment of impending doom where she's, like, something really bad is about to happen to me. And I don't know how it's going to come or what it is, but something bad is coming. Have you guys ever had a moment like that? I think a moment a moment that would be similar to that, it wasn't that of pending doom, but it was more about feeling lost, literally feeling lost and not knowing what would happen to me now. <laughs> um, I remember, so Andrew and I had to travel, well, not that we had to, but we decided to go to Florida, which we usually do for Christmas, and to visit my parents. On our way back... Our flight was canceled and Andrew had to be back for a very important meeting. So he had to be back by a certain point and we decided to rent a car and drive 23 hours all the way back because it was either him miss the meeting and not not us not know the next time we would get back. Because I believe it was the year that there was like this crazy blizzard that happened that basically Mm -hmm. canceled all the flights between anywhere in the Mm -hmm. south and the north. And so... On our trip there, we had to do it within those 24 hours. We stopped by. We stopped at like one of those convenience stores. I needed to run into the bathroom. I come out and where Andrew had parked to drop me off, his car was no longer there. Oh, my God. And I like we were in the middle of nowhere pretty much. Like that was just a stop that we could do because I like I was dying to go pee. And I started looking i didn't have my cell phone with me i'm like wait a second i just went in and i thought this is where he parked and there's other cars around but i don't see the car that he rented and at that point i was like what just happened to him what's gonna happen to me i don't know what i'm gonna do how am i gonna get a hold of him like i i and of course the anxiety was already there because i never traveled like that and for 24 hours in a car that it was just like there was so much overwhelming this overwhelming sense of panic and anxiety and like not knowing how to get out of the situation and so I, I would say for about like 20 minutes or so I started walking around 
And then oh finally, God, I saw Andrew. The thing is, he was trying to find a different parking space, and he thought that I would know, like I would be able to pick up the car, which I didn't. I it was just, I guess uh, I was really tired or whatever. But I thought oh something had God. happened to him. I don't know. So it was pretty crazy. Oh, that yeah. sucks. Ooh. Yeah. Yikes. I know exactly. I mean, I can still feel the panic. Like, it still makes my stomach hurt when I think about this. This was my younger, dumber years when I didn't know any better. I did know better. I just wanted a good story. (laughs) (laughs) About eight years ago, I did the birthright trip, you know, the free trip to Israel. Yeah. And at the end of the trip, I had extended my stay for another 10 days and I was just going to do it by myself and um, but two other people from my birthright trip had also extended so we decided that the three of us would take like a day trip to Jordan so we traveled from Israel over to Jordan to go to Petra and it was beautiful and it was amazing and stunning and I've never seen anything like it so we befriend these Bedouins on a mountainside while we're there and we were hanging out for them with them for a while, and um, it was nearing sunset, and they were like, you should come back to our village. We'd love to take you to our cave and, like, make you dinner and show you what it's like in, like, a real Bedouin tent. And I was like, yeah, cool. Oh, my goodness. And so I was with another guy and a girl for my birthright trip. <clears throat> so we ride on these donkeys, like, 40 minutes out of Petra into their neighboring village, and they st- we stopped and we got ingredients for them to cook their meal and we got a bottle of whiskey. So then their friend drives us out into their cave, I say with quotations, mm-hmm. with air quotations, because it was literally like a tin shed in the middle of nowhere. Oh, boy. And oh there are gosh. no streetlights. It is pitch black. So I have no idea where we are. And I'm thinking, if anything happens to me here, no one will find me. No one will know where I am. Oh, my God. No, I can't. I can't. And so the evening started off really nicely. You know, we go into this shed, a.k.a. their cave. And, you know, they made a fire. And they were making us their traditional, their dinner, which was delicious. And we're all drinking whiskey and apple juice. And what I didn't know was that Bedouins typically don't drink alcohol. So one of them had gotten very drunk. Oh, no. And started trying to make out with my friend, the girl. No. And she kept pushing back and she was like, no, 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 no. And I'm trying to like step in and and try to distract and change the, the vibe. And then he starts spewing about how much he hates women and he'll go back to jail for what he did to women before. And now I'm like super freaked out. And I was like, we got to go. But the driver of the car had left. So we are stuck (gasps) out in the middle of God knows where. Oh, my my God. With no escape route. And I started to panic a little bit. Some, I, I honestly, I don't even remember what happened between that time and the driver coming back, but the driver eventually came back and I was like, we got to go right now. We got to leave. So then we get in the car. The drunk guy who was trying to make out with my friend is in the front seat. He starts trying to beat the driver. Oh my God. So the driver comes around and takes like a metal pole that was above my head in the car and like beats the guy over the head with it. And it was like the worst Holy. evening it was terrifying, and I was like, this was not worth it oh for, like, a cool gosh. story or, like, a cool Sounds experience. It. Right. it was really, really dumb, and I thought oh, for no. sure 
that we were going to die <laughs> multiple oh times. Oh, my God. Oh, my so God. So that's, that's my experience with impending doom. Uh, wow. Wow. Well, mine is really childish <laughs> compared to both of yours. <laughs> I can't wait. Mine is, mine is actually super fucking nerdy. So when I was in high school, my senior year of high school, our theater... Uh, our speech theater and debate coach left our school like he there was weird stuff that happened and he just ended up having to resign. And it broke all of our hearts because he was a super devoted teacher. He would take us to like tournaments, like all this stuff. It was a really big deal for us. We would go to like probably 20 tournaments a year and he would take us to all of them. He was our coach and stuff like acting tournaments and stuff. Huh. And so it ended up being our like just our regular theater teacher who took over that sort of responsibility and he was not going to be taking us to any tournaments like that was all just kind of done with your senior year of high school it's just kind of devastating like we had been working up to this for the last three years like it was supposed to be our like time to shine or whatever mm. so at the time I was dating a guy who went to a, a, a school about 45 minutes away and they went to theater tournaments religiously. And so I, along with two of my friends, decided, fuck this. We'll go with their school. Like, we're going one way or another. And so we went to this tournament with a different school. And just we weren't going to tell anybody, basically. Like, we were going to go. We were going to compete. We are going to do our um, thing, get our practice. Mm -hmm. And we just weren't going to say anything. So we do the tournament. You know, we win all our little trophies or whatever. We get home that night and we decide we're going to go see the movie Chicago. Chicago has come out. <laughs> and we're sitting at the movie sort of like giggly and feeling high off of our little like escapade, our little, you know, whatever revenge tour. And the theater teacher comes up to us, the three of us, and he looks right at me and he says, tell me you weren't one of the ones who went to that other tournament today. Oh. And I looked right back at him and I was like, I was. I helped arrange it. <gasps> and huh. he looked at me. He was so mad. And he looked at me and then he just looked really disappointed. And he was like, okay, we're going to talk tomorrow. Huh. And he just like walked away. And it was so ominous. And at the time, I was the lead in the school musical. Like there were all these things ah. that I was like, if I get in trouble... This could be a really big deal. Right. And I did. I almost got, I was very close to almost getting suspended, which is ridiculous. Well, for I almost that? got suspended. I almost got pulled from the play. I almost didn't get to do the musical. It was, oh I was playing God. Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors. They uh, almost didn't let me oh, be Audrey. No. And they didn't let me go to any other tournaments the rest of the year, except for I did get to go to like state that year. But, like, I didn't get to go to any tournaments in preparation for it. And I almost got fucking suspended over that, that shit. But insane. I just remember, like, I remember, like, looking back at him and being like, yeah, I was one of the people who went and helped <laughs> organize it. I had so much confidence. And then right after he walked away, I was like, oh, my God, my life is about to be over. No. <laughs> oh, no. I thought I was going to be in so much You rebel. <laughs> I know, but it's like such a nerdy rebel story. Like a part of me did think, though, like, am I going to not get to go to college? Like, are they going to call NYU? Like, are they going to not let me? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I was, it was silly. Whatever. <laughs> it was silly. <laughs> so in our next chapter, we find out 
dun, that dun, Mutar dun. does in fact remember. Emma was saying. right. Emma was right. Bum, she bum, fucking theory. remembers. She said her sister is a serial killer. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Yeah. She dumb. And I think actually I did <laughs> earlier, I said in the last episode, which is a lie because it was actually the first episode. I'm drunk. So <laughs> <laughs> that's our excuse. Sorry, I'm not yeah. keeping along with the times. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder how I wonder like how we're gonna come out of this. Like what's gonna I happen. Know. Yeah. I know. Is he gonna then tell someone? Like what what what's gonna now we know that he remembers. He doesn't remember or everything, but we at least her. knows we at least know that he remembers that Corday said that her sister is a serial killer. Well, a part of me did feel like though, it didn't seem like he had any ill will towards her. Like I wondered, is it possible that he's just going to keep this quiet as repayment for everything Corday's done for him? Like, is it possible that he'll choose to see her as a good person in a bad situation? And then I also wondered on the opposite side of the spectrum, like, is it possible that he's going to be her first victim? Mm. I was going to bring that up. You, oh, I'm sorry. I You've been right enough. There was some chapter in which I... Oh, in the next chapter, in Madness, I speculated that because she considered writing Mutar's name in the notebook. Oh, right. So I was like, right. girl, that notebook, is, that notebook is for your dead victims. Right. Well, it's supposedly for Ayula's dead victims. Yeah, but like, why would, she, why would you write the name in the notebook if you weren't going to kill him? For sure. Even yeah. if it's Ayula's victims. Yeah, but it, I did when when I read that when she said she was considering writing his name in the the notebook, I was like, is there some chance she's gonna tell Ayula? Because if she tells Ayula, it's over. Ayula's gonna kill him. Oh, for sure. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't sure is she saying I could kill him or was she saying I'm gonna set Ayula on him? You really think so, though? About I don't which? Know. It depends how desperate she gets. Yeah, because I feel like it. It, it seems to me that all of Ayula's victims have been. Because of self-defense or her boyfriends or people that have mistreated her directly. I don't know. But this would if, be self-preservation, if not self-defense. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. I, I do know that now I think that morality is completely out the window for Corday. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because she... I mean, there's all about... There's all these pleasantries when they're first talking to one another, her and Mutar. Right. But then she's she, sizing him up. Yeah. But then she literally lies to her patient when he says that he could be remembering stuff, but she's trying to figure out how much he has remembered. Mm. And then she goes on to say, oh, you know what? Some people with your condition might have hallucinations, which she clearly knows that that might not be a condition that he has. But he's try- she's trying to put that into his mind so he can later think Mm -hmm. that it was just all a dream as opposed to it being something that actually happened right yeah I tried to put myself in her shoes in this situation and I was like damn Corday how did you not have like some book that like had a mildly similar storyline that you could have been like no I was reading you a story like that was in the book or something you know what I mean like how do you not have some plausible deniability where you can say no I didn't say my sister was a serial killer I was reading you a story about xyz or like you know something 
Like, how does she not have a plan for this? And she even goes on to say that she wonders if this is how it is for Ayula. One minute she is giddy with happiness and good cheer. And the next minute her mind is filled with murderous intent. Right. So she's now considering, is this how Ayula feels? So that also leads us to believe that Mutar could be her potential victim. It's wetting her appetite. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and also it's almost like priming her survival instinct. You know what I mean? I feel like if they killed their dad, like, I feel like it was out of that, out of some sense of like needing to survive, needing to protect themselves. And if she kills Mutar, I feel like it'll be out of the same sort of need to preserve the self, need to keep themselves safe. Yeah. Protect your family. Yeah. Yeah. That she's still willing to be responsible and protect a woman who has killed multiple men, as far as she knows. But at this point, it's about her, too, because she's culpable now, too. Yeah. Even though in this next chapter called Asleep, this is where Corday, Femi comes back to Corday in her dreams. And Corday thinks to herself, you could have seen her for what she was. Even though she is willing to protect her and defend her, she's still like... Mm-hmm. Why is no one seeing her for that's true. who she really is? Yeah, which I imagine she also probably feels about herself. Like, why does no one see me for who I am? Yeah, and then we get to ice cream. Such a sweet title for mm. such a <laughs> for such a for ugly such a, event oh, for such a heartbreaking moment. Right. So this is when Peju Peju. Femi's sister mm-hmm. approaches Coraday and Ayula sort of she's angry and she's crying and she's just she just wants to know what happened. Of she, course. She seems to just need closure in the situation and just needs to know what happened to Femi. The thing that struck me about this ice cream chapter that I just have to shout because I thought it was freaking hilarious yeah. and I feel like. I feel like it was another mark of the dark humor in this story and this writer's real talent at this. Mm. The final moment in this ice cream chapter, it's Ayula that ends up hugging Peju, who's crying. Ayula's comforting her, but she's actually just like sadly watching her ice cream drip away. <laughs> and Corday describes it as like she she's just sort of mourning the loss of her ice cream that she's like not going to get to lick anymore. No. <laughs> yeah. Which was the perfect uh, juxtaposition yes. between those two experiences. For totally. Oh, <laughs> it's like man. the perfect description of Ayula. <laughs> <laughs> she's hugging one of her victims' uh, relatives, <laughs> and she's sad about her ice, ice cream. She can no Lollies. longer lick it. After she put the thought into her mind that maybe he is dead after all. Right. Yeah. <laughs> As, as like a comforting thought, like just right. so you know, Maybe like yeah, he he's died. probably dead. He's probably at peace. <laughs> oh lord, <laughs> that's such a good point. <laughs> so now we come to our final chapter of this section oh, that yeah. we read, entitled "Secret." Secret. Did either chapter. of you know right away that it was an engagement ring? Once he once the we got into the chapter a little bit, I suspected, but at the start, no, I had no idea. I had no idea. Well, but he has the ring. Yeah, a two. What is it? Like a two carat ring, and 
And when he asked Coraday if if she thinks Ayula will like it later, I love how she's like, she won't like it if it's not three carrots or more. Well, it's interesting because initially she sees it and she's like, any woman would be happy yeah. to wear this ring. Yeah. And then later she's Except like, just so Ayula. you fucking know, Ayula will hate this ring. <laughs> <laughs> and she probably will. Probably like with the flowers, she'll text him and be like, I really prefer three carrots. <laughs> and he'll go running to get a different ring I don't know (laughs) well I mean I feel like he deserves that because Corday asks him why is Ayula so special to you and his response is because she's beautiful and perfect and I love how Corday then thinks to herself he couldn't come up with any of those other like beautiful isms of hers that I know that make her so special like these weird wonky even Corday, who knows her at her worst, right, has acknowledges that. ideas right. of what her best qualities are. Mm-hmm. Yet again, he, confirming that he really does only love her because she's beautiful and perfect. I say again with air quotations. Or is he bewitched? I'm still hanging on to this hope that, like, does <laughs> she have some power? Or does the knife have some power? Like, why is he being this way? I was so mad at him. But those two words, again, it's beautiful and perfect. It's like, why is beauty uh, such an important thing and such a, uh, an idea that of someone's worth is, is their looks are so important and it gives them a sense of worth. And the same with perfection, because we know that perfection can't be reached, but he uses that word without really knowing who she is. Right. So right. I, I just it doesn't I don't know. Oh, I was so mad and disappointed. Pointed it. I was I mad that I was like, how can you choose to believe Ayula, a woman who you barely know? He couldn't even come up with reasons he likes her over Coraday, a woman he's worked with for, I'm assuming, like years, like a prolonged period of time. They were friends. Like, how can you? Totally. Yeah, but then I love Coraday says to him, just watch your back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's crazy is in this chapter, she tells him that she has killed people before or she says he. She's yeah, killed she a person. flat out says those words. Yeah, she flat out tells him the truth and he does not believe her. He accuses her of blaming Ayula for that death, which was, according yeah. to him and Ayula, completely like an accidental thing that happened. Right. But he accuses Corday of like torturing Ayula over it. Because that's what Ayula tells him. She's fucked up. She's playing both sides. I totally think she's going to frame Corday for this shit. Can we just like go ahead and like read ahead? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, listeners. Now. No, we yeah, can't. now we can. At this point, you can. Yeah. We've just got the last chapters right. of the book to go. We're finishing it up after this. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> <laughs> read away, listeners. Yeah. Read away. <laughs> just do it. Well, we have to, in fashion, close our episodes with a fun, final personal question. And I'm really excited about this one that I want to know about you, ladies. Uh In theme of what we're reading, obviously, I want to know, have either of you ever done something terrible and Hmm. gotten away with it? Or maybe done something terrible but not gotten away with it? Speaking of juicy, um, (laughs) yeah, I actually, (laughs) this is going back to my freshman year of college. My birthday would always happen because my birthday's in September. 
my birthday happens at the beginning of the school year. And since I was a freshman in college, I was still trying to make friends and trying to figure my surroundings and just be, you know, a part of groups. So a few of my already girlfriends that were part of the dance program, they were like, well, why don't we just all go out to dinner? And I was like, great. And one of them suggested Jekyll and Hyde. I don't know if you guys have ever been to this like amusement theme oh, the restaurant. restaurant, Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, I don't mind, but I know. God, yikes, yay. So we go, and it's pretty much the whole freshman <laughs> dance department. So it was like about 24 of us went out to dinner, which was really fun that everybody was there celebrating my birthday. And then someone, and I'm not going to say who it was, because Ooh. I do remember who it was, decided that it because it was such an expensive bill Ooh. and we were actually getting to drink even though we were underage, they decided that why not make it extra special and walk out on the bill? <gasps> no. So one by one, one would go to the bathroom, <gasps> one would go no. outside pretending oh, they were going for a my smoke. God. And guess who was left trailing no. behind? Yep. You, so Mariana. I like start freaking no. out once again. I guess I'm like freaking out a lot in this episode, but I start freaking out. And I like, I, I believe I was still with one of my girlfriends. We start walking outside. Then we start hearing someone yelling at us when I think it was a waiter <gasps> or the manager by then. And because there were, there were a, a lot of levels to this restaurant. So when we had to go up the stairs, we opened the huge doors to this restaurant. We start hauling ass and running. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing? I can't get in trouble. Like, they're going to catch me. They're going to call the cops. Like, why? I can't ruin my birthday like this. So little me goes back and I'm like, I'm so sorry. It's my birthday. And they just all left me and I am going to pay the bill. So I ended up paying a ridiculously <gasps> expensive bill. Then, oh, they my did. God. It just took me a Those long people, time. I had to go with my tail between my legs back the next morning to our freshman class and be like, hey, guys, you all owe me for my birthday. <laughs> That's terrible. I know it was a terrible thing to do, but I was like trying to go along with them. And then it ended up being so shitty. But you ended up doing the right thing in the end. I know. And especially for that server, because they would have gotten stuck with the bill and they wouldn't have gotten a tip. And it was just, it was. Oh, yeah. That would have really sucked. Yeah. So happy birthday to me when I was a freshman. Yay. That's funny because my terrible. My terrible story also was from freshman year of college, (laughs) but mine doesn't end on a nice note like yours does. Like I didn't actually end up making it right. I just went all the way. (laughs) I actually still feel kind of bad about this, but again, freshman year of college, my roommate, my roommate's brother came to town to visit and hang out and like go on, go out onto the town in Philly with her and he was under 21 and I guess not I guess oh let me start over I feel like I've just forgotten how to speak so mine also freshman year of college um my roommate's younger brother came to town to visit her and to like go out on town go out on the town and he was under 21 and I wasn't home this night I think I was like staying at my friend's in my friend's dorm room and he got wasted And I came back to my dorm room the next morning after having a sleepover at my friend's and the whole dorm room reeked of vomit. I mean, it was like gag inducing. And I was like, ooh, like what happened here? And I could see 
you know, like a big wet stain on the carpet in the living room, like outside of the refrigerator. And there was still vomit in the bathroom sink. So like, obviously, I knew that shit had gone down. So I asked my roommate, like, what happened here because it reeked. And she didn't admit that he had thrown up. She said that there was um, mold in the carpet and that she had used like a bad expired brand of Febreze to like clean it up and it didn't work. I mean, it was a ridiculous lie. And I was like, okay. And I didn't want to like push it anymore or have any more confrontation. Right. But I was so pissed because then I ended up being the one to clean it because I could oh, tell no. that she tried, oh. but she didn't really try. And she no. definitely didn't that try in the so bathroom. Like there was puke <gasps> all in the bathroom. So I was so mad that I was dealing with it. And I also already had some like beef with her because oh she was like stealing my stuff. She wasn't a very good roommate to begin with. I should preface it with that. So in cleaning up her brother's puke, I used her shower loofah to clean it out of the bathroom. <laughs> oh, just so oh, gross. Oh, my God. I and I feel pretty bad that. about it. Good for I you, actually. Do. I do a little you bit, but all. I was like, listen. <laughs> wow. Well, once again, I feel like a fucking nerd because my story is... You're just I, so I was pure, right, right, exactly. I haven't done... She does no wrong. It's not... It's not that. It's just that they're not fun stories. You know what I mean? When I've done something wrong. So the funnest story I could think of, I was a little kid. I probably was maybe like five or six or something really pretty young. And I had opened up the refrigerator and I could see like up in the like, you know, how refrigerators have kind of like Mm -hmm. a plastic partition section that kind of like Uh opens up. Yeah, like for butter and stuff. There was what looked to me like um, like a candy wrapper, like for chocolate. And I was being really devious and like we weren't really allowed sweets like that. But I saw it and I was like, I'll just take a square and my mom will never know. So I did it. I took a square. I ate it. I closed up the foil paper on the candy again. And I was like, that's it. And I went and kind of played for a little while or whatever. And like throughout the day, I kind of just kept coming back and like I would take another little square and I would be like, she'll never know. She just has no idea. And so I probably ate like, I would say probably like eight or nine of those like squares of chocolate. And then at the end of the day, my mom is making dinner and she opens up the fridge and she sees it and she's like, who ate this? And I'm really quick to be like, I don't, I don't know what you mean. Like what's what? I don't know. My mom's like, you guys, I'm not kidding. Who ate this? And I'm just like, I don't want to get in trouble. Like, I don't, I don't know. And my mom looks at me and she goes, this is not chocolate. And I was like, I didn't, I didn't eat it. It wasn't me. And she goes, this is not chocolate. If you ate it, you're going to be really sick. And I was still like maintaining. I don't <gasps> Turned out it was X-Lax. Oh. Yep. Found that one out the hard way. <laughs> Later that evening and into the next day. I thought she was gonna I thought she was gonna say that it was like an edible. Yeah, I thought like so too. special chocolate. Imagine. 
I I wish it had been. I wish. Nope. It was X Lax, and she was like, "What the hell?" I don't. It tasted like chocolate. It looked like chocolate. Oh. They put it in the candy foil like it's chocolate. Like I thought it was freaking chocolate. Oh, I ate Brandy. so much of. The, I ate. But I so love much how the, the one thing that you thought of. Yeah. The Not bad fun. thing you did, you were like five or six. I know, right? You've Way been a back saint ever day. since then. <laughs> Like I said, it's not that I've been a saint. They're just uh, not no. as fun stories as that one. Because <laughs> I, I really oh, got what gross. was going to me with that Ooh. one. <laughs> Let's leave our listeners with that. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that note. <laughs> Let's leave them with yeah, that yeah, image. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening to that. Next week, we're finishing Ooh, out yeah, this we book, can. so you better read the rest of the chapters. <laughs> a big thank you to Jimmy Fontanez and Meteorite Productions, as well as Text Me Records for our music. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, come on. And come on, leave us a five-star review. Or, or leave us multiple reviews. You we want you your want reviews. To. We want to hear what you think. Yeah. And I get it. If you're not an Apple person, uh, boo. Boo. Okay, just kidding. No. Which is totally fine. <laughs> you can also tune in on Spotify and Google Podcasts. And be sure to check in with our Instagram page at Are These Books Drunk to play along with us if you have a theory of your own. Yeah, let us yeah. have a theory over gonna here. Happen. We love a theory. Also, stay tuned for next week's cocktail pairing so that you can read along and sip along with us. Because it's always happy hour here. 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 (laughs) Well, that went off the rails. (laughs) Ciao, ladies. Bye. Bye.